ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Gods and monsters, heroes and mortals, adventure, love and tragedy. Hello and welcome to The Bookshelf. I'm Kate Evans. And I'm Cassie McCullough. And this monthly book club edition is entirely devoted to the Greek myths, which have been having quite a moment in recent times, if you've noticed. Not bad for a bunch of old stories, which are, well, at least... 2,700 years old. Yes, they just seem to keep coming. Novels retelling the Greek myths have been popping up on bookshelves and bestseller lists in recent years. Contemporary takes on the tragedies and reimaginings of the epics, often through female figures. Look, Kate, someone has to say it right now. Grace is the word. (laughs) So we're going to take a look at some of these reworkings and ask, why do we come back to them time and again? Well, we put that question to the ABC Book Club Facebook group this week, and here are just some of the replies. Tasha Woodley said, I've only just discovered my love for it recently, having had no real prior knowledge of Greek mythology besides the more famous retellings. She went on to say that she recently read Circe and Song of Achilles, both by Madeline Miller, and she's currently reading A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes. All a delight, she says. I keep coming back to the lyricism of the tragedies and I love the different perspectives and how the characters all come together in an epic ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, and Madeline Miller is right up there with Natalie Haynes as one of the most popular in this genre right now. This one from Joanne Nibbs. I think the ancient Greek wrote Roman and Jewish myths and legends are like Shakespeare. They hold universal truths and continually reward and warrant re-examination. They have an infinite number of variations that can be played with. I've just finished Phaedra by Laura Shepperson, Galatea by Madeline Miller and Medusa by Jesse Burton, all retold from the female point of view. As Natalie Haynes said in Pandora's Jar, why tell the story from a female perspective? The answer should always be, she's in the damn story. Why wouldn't we want to hear from her? And Helen Politas said, Greek passion, desire and quest for freedom is, in my view, culturally unrivaled. But then again, I would say that. I'm a proud Greek. (laughs) Whereas Mark Dolderson wanted to talk about the Stephen Fry trilogy on the Greek myths. Mythos, Heroes and Troy made especially great, he said, by reading some while he was on holidays in Greece. Mm -mm. To view the characters in stone at the Archaeological Museum in Athens is a delight once you know the backstory, have lent to family and friends who have also loved them. Yeah, Justine Carter is also a big fan of Stephen Fry. But here's one from Deborah Smith, I think reminding us that although this current wave is big, the Greek myths have always been popular. She says some old favourites include Mary Reno's The King Must Die, The Bull from the Sea by Rosemary Sutcliffe, Flowers of Adonis, The Anger of uh, Achilles by Robert Graves, Achilles His Armour by Peter Green, and most recently, Pat Barker's Women of Troy. And Georgia Phillips puts her hand up for The Penelope Ad by Margaret Atwood, The Odyssey, she says, from her perspective. 
So keep on coming with your comments about reading and rereading Greek mythology. But today we're looking at a range of books, including the just-released Atalanta by Jennifer Saint and Stoneblind by Natalie Haynes, which tells Medusa's story, as well as one we've just heard mentioned, The Women of Troy by Pat Barker. And also some of the best of recent years, including David Maloof's Ransom about masculinity and also the love and rage and grief felt by both Achilles and Priam in the Iliad. Well, first things first, let's meet today's guests. Kate, I think you mean, let's go Greek in taxi. (laughs) This is a rather exciting moment, actually, because for the first time in several years, we have three guests in the studio with us. And we think the last time was 2019. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. (laughs) With us is Dr. Tamara Neal, lecturer in ancient Greek at the University of Sydney. Welcome back, Tamara. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So, Tamara, what do you understand about why students are doing ancient Greek in 2023? Students are passionate about the ancient world. They're passionate for ancient Greece. They're passionate for ancient history. They're passionate for uh, the ancient literature. We get students also who are of Greek heritage and they're interested in sort of you know, going back to the old language. So I always get two or three students who who have modern Greek already and, and they're really keen to, to explore that a bit further. That's and, lovely. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it is lovely. Yeah. Also with us is a person of Greek extraction, Peter Polites, who's a writer from Western Sydney and the author of two acclaimed novels, Down the Hume and The Pillars, which won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Multicultural New South Wales Literary Award. What a mouthful. Peter Yasu. Yasu, Cassie. <laughs> now, um, you've got a new novel that's going to be released in August. It's called God Forgets About the Poor. It alternates between Western Sydney and Greece, going back in time periods as well. Is this drawing on your personal experience? Yeah, it's a it's a biofictional novel, but a lot of the myth stuff is uh, in, enfolded into it as well, you know? Yes, and we're going to we'll get to that because that's that's quite important in the discussion that we're going to have. Also here with us is Dr. Helen Vatsakopoulos, who is a journalist and also a fellow at the University of Technology Sydney. Yasu to you too. Efkaristopoli. <laughs> <laughs> now, Helen, you're also the artistic director of the Greek Australian Writers Festival. How fabulous! Now it's been going for two years now. So tell us about the um, well, the focus of this festival. Well, I think because, as we've just heard, that the Greek myths and, and Greek culture is universal. You know, it's a foundation stone of Western civilization. And I thought that this is a really good way to promote uh, Greek Australian writers like Peter, who was uh, came <laughs> this year, and also other writers who write on Greek themes. So I just wanted to bring these two groups together and have a discussion about all the themes and all all the issues that the writing and and the history throws up at us and it's been a lot of fun. Oh, well, the next one in next year, what's your theme? What are you thinking? Well, funny you should say that. When you rang me to ask me to come on the program, (laughs) I thought after seeing a plethora of books out there on uh, Greek mythology, I thought that is a very, very good theme for next year. So so stay tuned. It is so hot right now. Totally hot. All right, before we move on to the books, just quickly, I want to hear how you all first came to the Greek myths because for me it's so important in my life. i got this big book when I was probably about 10 years old and it was 
orange and it was called Gods, Men and Monsters. And it had this huge Medusa head and Perseus with his shiny shield and and sickle on the front. And that was it. I was completely immersed forever. And I think, Kate, you had a similar experience when you were young. It was a very old book. It was from a very strange collection of encyclopedias. And volume nine was the only one that had a worn out spine because it was full of the Greek myths. And I and my six siblings read it over and over and over again. And it's basically what led me to study history. Oh, well, there you go. Tamara, what about you? It's clearly had a big impact on your life. I mean, how did you fall in love with Greek mythology? Do you know, I feel like the myths have always been a part of my life. Unlike you two, I actually don't remember the first book I ever encountered the myths in. I think I was always immersed in the myths. They were always being told around me. And my mother, and, you know, it's a shout out to my mum if she listens to this, but uh, when we were kids, we'd go down to the beach and we'd look at the waves and she said, can you see Neptune? Neptune's coming in on the waves. It was always there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess that's that's how I got into it. And then, you know, it was the usual route. Uh, going to high school, I, I studied Latin and then I got to university and I studied classics and, and here I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so many years later. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Helen? Well, I didn't grow up with the Greek myths. I was born in Greece and my parents were peasant farmers and there really wasn't much time to read, uh, let alone to talk about Greek myths with your with your only daughter. But I was fortunate, unfortunate, to have to go to Greek school every Saturday for many, many years and that's where it was really drummed into me. And that was a source of pride because when I went to Australian school and they were talking about Greek myths, then I was say, yeah, that's, that's me. That's mm-hmm. me. That's where I come from. Peter Pilates, what about you? Is it um, something that's just always been woven into your life, like the way Helen and Tamara are saying? Yeah, um, I was one of those kids that couldn't sleep at all. So my mum would tell me the stories orally to get me to sleep. And the first one she'd tell me was the acts of Hercules. The tasks. The tasks that he had to do. So as a child, I grew up listening to the tasks of Hercules and she'll tell you this story too. She'll be like, Peter could never sleep. And I had to tell him all these stories and he kept on asking for stories. So and that then, sounds like a her- Herculean task, getting yeah. you to sleep every night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was more Sisyphean than that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you were dreaming about cleaning out stables. Now, Madeline Miller is one of the queens of the Greek myth scene right now. Her books include The Song of Achilles and Circe, and she's working on one about Persephone. During the pandemic, some of her books started selling huge numbers, which left both Madeline and her publishers delighted, but perplexed. Yeah, it turns out that her song of Achilles had been going off on Book Talk. It's a section of TikTok where kids and teenagers post about books. Here's Madeline Miller talking to the RN Book Show last year about uh, about that and why she thinks kids like myths. One thing that I, I, I think is interesting about the Greek myths is that oftentimes we actually teach them to children um, that, you know, the first time kids encounter these stories, they encounter them in kind of, you know, fifth grade when they're 10 years old or something. But it's kind of shocking because the myths are full of things that are extremely inappropriate <laughs> for children, you know, bestiality, necrophilia, like there's all kinds of stuff that is very inappropriate. Um, and, and I feel like the teenagers appreciate that, you know, these stories are not pulling any punches. Um, These are stories about people who behave extremely badly. Often they're stories about grief and pain and, you know, real anger and also tremendous courage and love. They're about 
you know, dysfunctional parents and children and siblings. And they're just, you know, they're about real things. And even though there's this fantastical element of gods and monsters and all of that, I think, you know, at their core, they're about human experiences. And I, I think that teenagers really appreciate that they're not sort of talking down to them. You know, these are real intense stories about very high stakes. And I, I think that that resonates with anyone who's looking for kind of truth in the world. Mm. And I understand that there were young people weeping <laughs> over the tragedy of Achilles and Patroclus, which is what led to 10 years after its first publication, Madeline Miller's book suddenly having a huge upsurge in sales. Yeah, but I remember reading some of the myths to my five-year-old niece and going, hmm, I'm not sure this is age appropriate. I might have to come back to that in a few years' time, I think. All right, well, let's get on with it. Let's talk about some of the books that we've asked our guests to read today. This is The Bookshelf on RN via podcast and broadcast, and today it's an edition of our monthly book club entirely devoted to the current popularity of novels which retell the Greek myths. Now, in a moment, we're going to get on to the latest, Atlanta, by Jennifer Saint, about the only female Argonaut. But I'm curious, if we just stay with the, the big picture here for a moment, why are there so many retellings of the myths in recent years? What's driving the interest and reinvention now, do you reckon, Tamara? Uh, my feeling is that there's nothing new about creating new versions of myths. Myths are mutable and they can be reread and retold ad infinitum. And this has actually been happening for millennia. And my second sort of thought about this is that each generation, each cultural shift, if you like, sees or even requires a reworking, a new way of telling a myth that comments on and offers insight into people, into society and ourselves. Finally, I think that the mythic universe, it's its familiar and it's constant to so many, for so many of us with respect to its characters and narratives. And maybe um, because of this, it sort of accommodates and supports um, a complex and, you know, what one person has uh, identified as an imaginative fluidity. So it's, they're always relevant. It seems to me what you're saying is that the, the myths themselves are so powerful that they almost transcend the form of the day and they are retold because the stories themselves are so strong. I think they've been around for millennia and I think, we're, as I said, we're so familiar with them. I think that there's always something there. There's always something familiar. There's always something relevant. You know, as one person said years and years ago, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, there's seven stories in, in the world and they keep being retold. And there's, there's always something there that enables us to understand the world better, to understand ourselves better, to understand the society that we're in. Um, and then I think that new, each generation kind of rediscovers the myths and each each retelling kind of brings out something that's important for the new generation or for a cultural shift that's occurred or, or what have you. Sometimes they're sort of turned on their head, though, aren't they? Which is one of the things that we're seeing, which are characters who might be asides or plot points or the woman about whom a war is supposedly fought. They're the characters, particularly the women, who are being given voice. So, yeah, that's, I mean, it's huge. The feminist retellings of, of the myths, it's about giving voice to women's experiences, to women's um, suffering. It's a way of interrogating the official history, I suppose, the official history that features male narratives. I think these 
retellings that feature the women, it, it's saying they were part of the history as well. They're part of the cultural history. Let's let's reconsider, you know, what we've been told for all these years and, and think about what women have been experiencing. Yeah, look, there's a slew of articles uh, this year out, like here's one from The Guardian, um, why feminist retellings are filling our bookshelves about the myth. Another one here um, from Book Trib saying 13 novels that reclaim the story of the women of Greek mythology. What about you, Peter Polites? I mean, these retellings, are there problems or dilemmas that arise out of this? I mean, I guess the question is, who has the right to tell Greek stories? I understand this has been the subject of some debate on Greek Twitter. Yeah, it's an ongoing debate about who has the right to tell Greek myths. And I think we can get into like something quite uh, conflict-orientated if we talk about who has the right to tell the stories. But if we go back to um, interrogating thought and asking how Greek myths um, make up the architecture of our knowledge, maybe Western knowledge, white supremacist knowledge, you can ask different questions around where Greek myths fit in terms of our knowledges. Okay, tell us more about that. Well, first of all, like uh, there was a town where they discovered the Oracle of Delphi. There was a little village there and some French archaeologists just moved the whole village so they can take up this town and find the Oracle. I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, people don't look at Greeks and they think Greeks are these like um, automatons that are there to serve them on their holidays. You know, no one ever talks about how Greeks have an ongoing connection to ancient times. Like if you go to if you go to Greece, especially around the Olympics, right? They had to remake all the they had to remake all the trains, and they'd often just bump into ruins. So then they just had to rebuild around the ruins. So then you'd get on the underground, and you just walk through all these ruins. And so the myths are just part of our cultural heritage. Just as you were saying, it was handed down to you from your mother's, from My, your mother tongue, literally. Yeah. yeah. And, but the other thing about them is that also that they allow different interpretation in the Greek myths as well, you know. So I learned about the Hercules and the tasks that he had to do as a child and they captured my imagination as a child. But then as an adult, you learn the reason why he had to do those tasks and they were a form of penance as a response to domestic violence, which make the... What Greek myths so interesting as well is that they're fundamentally about desire, whether that be familial, whether that be erotic, often both, <laughs> right, and violence and uh, huge acts of violence. And those are the two things as a writer that just fascinate me so much, violence and desire. But if we go back to the uh, your first response about keeping them, about acknowledging them as Greek stories, are you concerned that they're being divorced from their specificity, the cultural specificity, when they're then being used and, and reused in this sort of broader sense? Uh, look, I think they are a form of knowledge that belongs to the entire world. I also think that they have been used as tools of white supremacy. And a practical example of that, that Dr. Adonis Peperoglu uses from uh, Melbourne Uni is if you go to the State Library of New South Wales and you see the beautiful colonial architecture embedded into the frescoes are the Greek philosophers and the Greek thinkers. And so you've got to think about the way 
uh, a mastery of Greek knowledge has been used to enforce colonial power within Australia on stolen land. And I guess part of the, the broader British Empire project as well, a lot of that was about taking up classicism. Exactly. And the most classic example you can think of is the Parthenon marbles. Um, but the Greeks are always talking about, like, when are we going to get them back? When are we going to get them back? And I think at task what needs to happen is a broader interrogation of classical knowledges and power. So you're saying that ancient Greek as a language but also the culture more broadly has been used for elitist purposes to keep people out of um well, parts of education, but also parts of the establishment. It's related to knowledge, law, power, authority. Yeah, it's a knowledge. Yeah, historically, uh, the epistemological framework of of Greek knowledges creates this tapestry of power. Can I add to that? So, my feeling is there's kind of um, encoded cultural values in the myths, for instance, or even you know what we know about ancient ancient Athens. So an example would be uh, the fact that women were disenfranchised. They couldn't participate in the democratic political system. So those values, oh, women can't be enfranchised. So that value is then decontextualised and then used as a justification for the oppression of women in the same way that enslaved people, that was a, a part of ancient Greek life. So again, you decontextualise that and you say, okay, here we've got this whole culture that uh, apparently accepted uh, slavery and so we can appropriate that encoded value and then use it to justify some horrific thing that happens, you know, especially in America. And then the second thing I wanted to say about that is, and I only found this out yesterday actually, the American gun lobby uses an ancient Greek saying that apparently one of the Greek generals said to the Persian king, and apparently the, the American gun lobby uses this, and it's Molon Labe, take them, come and take them. Yeah. Oh, it's from a, Yeah, it's oh. from a battle, isn't it? Yeah, it's from a battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that just, I mean, just makes me sick. There's actually also an example of what I think Peter's saying in the book by Pip Williams, the bookbinder of Jericho, where the main character, the woman whose name escapes me, is trying to get into university and to do this, she has to take a test in ancient Greek. This is the way you get into uh, university as and this is a in working the 1920s. Class, yeah. This is a working class girl during World War I. Um, so there's a whole other layer of the education in the classics as something that was so class-ridden in England. As a way of keeping people out, I suppose. Is that, I mean, what do you think of this, Helen Vatsikopoulos? I think there's two different arguments here. Uh, who has the right to write these Retellings is re- very interesting, and it's a different point from from what you're making. Molon Lave, I, I bought a T-shirt for my son with that uh, on it uh, in the Black Air in Athens. Uh, but look, I think that when we talk about the appropriation of of symbols, you know, there was neoclassicism in the 1800s, and and there were German princes who almost recreated the Parthenon in uh, in in their areas, and one of one of their descendants became the first king of Greece. That appropriation and that fascination with ancient Greece, I think, played a very important role in in the Greek revolution against the Ottoman Empire. When you had Byron and all these lords saying, "Oh, we must we we must free the Greeks." Well, they're really different Greeks from what they were in ancient 
Grace and and there's some suggestion that when Byron did get go to Mr. Lungi, he went, who are these people? Uh, so uh, so there's that appropriation. But look, you know, you were talking also about working class women. Look, I think it's fantastic that, uh, you know, and it's mostly women writing these books, it's very interesting, that they have been able to do classics at Oxford and Cambridge and then find a purpose for their degree, like a vocational purpose for their degree so they can earn money and then pay back their fees. And there's a whole industry out there. And I think if it's a good retelling, it's a good retelling. If it's a bad retelling, and just in my research, I came across a book, which I have to mention, God's Behaving Badly by Marie Phillips. Can't read my writing. But Aphrodite is a phone sex operator. <laughs> Apollo is a TV psychic. And Artemis is a, is a dog walker. Uh, can't wait for that one. Not. And there's going to be a Netflix That's series coming up called Chaos. Okay, and I'll Jeff say. Goldblum is going to play Zeus. So there's going to be more and more and it's being, it's going to be coming and um, if it's a morality play, it, it serves its purpose, I think. Uh, I think Homer would be chuffed to know that there are so many young women out there reinterpreting, maybe not so keen about the women's perspective, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. <laughs> and then sometimes they're being used in different cultures and countries for political purposes too. Uh, there's a, a new book uh, from Peru that deals with disappeared bodies and there's a lot of bodies that are either disappeared or desecrated in these stories. And Kamala Shamsi in Homefire um, uses Antigone as a story about resisting the state's control of bodies. Uh, Chigozi Obioma from Nigeria used the Odyssey. So can also be used for different purposes, I guess. Look, there are so many examples that we can draw on from this discussion about the different ways in which Greek mythology has been used across just not just the English tradition, but other traditions and, of course, Greek examples as well. So why don't we move on to some of the specific books that we're going to talk about here on The Book Club. Jennifer Saint was an academic and high school English teacher before turning her hand to writing in recent years. Her first novel was the best-selling Ariadne, which reimagines the classic tale of Theseus and the Minotaur through the eyes of the princess of Crete and daughter of King Minos. And her second was Electra, rethinking the matricidal revenge story. Now Atalanta is her latest mythological retelling. So here's the setup. As a baby, Atalanta was left to die on a mountainside because she was a girl and she was found by a mother bear and raised alongside her cubs. Now, she grew up in the forest under the protection of the goddess Artemis. But adventure beckons and the swift-footed Atalanta leaves the safety of her childhood home to join Jason and the Argonauts on their epic adventure. Now, Tamara and Peter, you have both had a look at this book and I already know that neither of you were all that impressed with it. Peter, Tamara, who wants to go first? Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Desperate pointing to each oh, other sorry. in the studio. So what 
Jennifer Saint has done is kind of put together, it's like a biography. It's an account of Electra's life and she has inserted Electra. Atlanta. I can't even remember the name of the book. (laughs) Of the heroine. They're all, yeah, yeah, right. They're a bit generic, maybe. I wasn't going to start. I was going to start with the good stuff. So I think it's a well-researched book. I think it's quite lively. It's fast-paced. You know, in some ways it's quite appealing. Uh, We get a woman who seems to have autonomy. Uh, She seems to be in the in the driver's seat, as it were, of, of her own adventure. So I really like that. Um, on the other hand, and which sort of slipped out accidentally before, I think, you know, it is a bit generic. Um, I don't think there's a lot of character development. I feel like I'm really putting the boot in now. I didn't love this book. It was a bit cliched, I suppose. I think I think that's what I found. Oh, yeah. heroine from Central Casting. Peter. <laughs> yeah, I think Tamara's going lightly. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I think what Jennifer Saint is doing to Greek myths is what, Georgette Heyer did to Regency novels. (laughs) Right. I think it'll find an audience amongst younger readers. I also think it will go off on book talk. But I also think that some of the adjectives, and I'm looking at the writing style in the first person, seem a bit contrite. And that's where you really find the quality of writing. And the character doesn't have obstacles. Rather, she overcomes obstacles way too easily. And... There were parts of it that read to me like um, The Hunger Games. Mm. (laughs) You know, this quote, I was determined to keep growing stronger and faster. I worked harder, practising every day at shooting my bow, practising my aim. Like, where's the conflict? Where's the obstacle Mm. which makes you like someone? Mm. But I take what you mean. And I actually thought it had slipped into the romance genre. In fact, you know, the meeting with the satyrs at the beginning uh, where she overcomes with her incredible skill but needs help, you know, from... I think also the thing about the Greek myths too is like, you know, they've, they've incorporated so many different parts of pop culture that, of course, they're going to turn into like a, a Regency genre into themselves. Bridgetonisation. The Bridgetonisation of <laughs> the Greek myths, right? It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, despite being incredibly empowered and given a mission by you know, the gods, like it's, she's still uh, she's still having to negotiate all this attention from men. And, and <laughs> see, I don't understand how you could do a queer or a feminist retelling of the Greek myths when they're already queer and feminist to me. <laughs> <laughs> the subtext's all there. Yeah. Well, look, let's leave Atalanta there and let's go to some of the books that you think have successfully retold the Greek myths or at least used them as a foundation for fresh new stories. Let's start with you, Tamara, and Stone Blind, which is out this year, and it is by Natalie Haynes, and it takes on the story of Medusa, the snake-headed gorgon. So everyone thinks they know who Medusa is or what Medusa is. You know, I think we're quite familiar. I think you said before your first myth book it had on the front, it had, you know, the sneaky hair and I think everybody knows that, uh, you know, she just by virtue of her gaze, she just, uh, she turns everything that she looks at into stone and, of course, we all know of her end, which is that she's uh, decapitated by by Perseus, the hero, and Perseus also manages on a kind of side trip on his return back with the Gorgon head uh, to rescue the princess Andromeda, and he does this by virtue of using the Gorgon head uh, to, to turn the monster that was about to gobble up uh, Andromeda uh, into stone. So he doesn't even need to use his sword. So I'm like, what kind of hero are you that you don't even need to use a sword? 
So what do I think about this? Well, I think the first thing that I want to say about Medusa is that she is actually in the historical sources and Natalie Haynes makes this point as well. And can I just say Natalie Haynes is amazing. She's a real vocal um, advocate for, for the importance of classics um, and she's really well versed. She, she trained as a classicist. She did Latin and Greek from, you know, when she was 14 or what have you. Um, and she's written quite a few books. So she says, no, she's not a monster. Um, she was a beautiful young woman of sorts. She did actually have special golden wings, so, you know, what have you, but she was she was, <laughs> she was very beautiful. Uh, Natalie Haynes says she's a monstered woman, and not only that, she's a monstered rape victim. So that's what this story is about. And she makes the really good point, and, you know, it's something that I had actually never thought about myself because I think, like everybody else, I just unquestioningly accepted the story of Medusa as a monster – she doesn't do anything monstrous until her head has been severed from her body. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Until that time, uh, she is, she's an innocent. And Natalie Haynes, uh, she, it's a lovely portrait um, with her and her sisters, Theno and Uriale, the, the other Gorgons, who are actually a little bit more Gorgonic, if, if that's actually an adjective. So <laughs> they've got like the wings, but they've also got these massive claws and, and tusks and so on. Um, so, you know, she's, she's a beautiful young woman. She has a really special relationship with her sisters. Um, and as, as I said, she's an innocent. And she takes pleasure in, you know, the living creatures that are around her. She loves looking at the ocean and, and so on. You know, Perseus, he killed Medusa because the evil brother of the fisherman that had taken in his mother. So he did this for his mother. So there's a whole kind of backstory there. Um, had said, oh, you know, I, I, I want to marry your mother. And he said, oh, is there anything that, you know, that, that I can do that would, would stop you from marrying my mother? And he said, go and get the Gorgon head. So it wasn't as though he was out on a mission to save the world from some horrible monster. You know, he just did this as, as a kind of Herculean task, if you like. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, you better go and do this. So not only does he kill her, he takes her power and uses it. Yes. For, for yes. Her. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, she's really interesting, Natalie Haynes. She does this thing, this podcast series. She's been doing mm. it for ages. Mm. Uh, it's called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. <laughs> Let's hear just a little bit of what it sounds like. Sophocles wrote well over 100 plays. He's incredibly popular. Um, I think this is always worth mentioning because it's very tempting for people to see Greek tragedy as being high art for a sort of small audience of fancy people. It was never written that way. Basically, people would turn up at the theatre to celebrate Dionysus. He is not just the god of tragedy, he is the god of wine. <laughs> if you want to really, you know, see a Greek tragedy as it was intended, you should be at least three parts gone before you start watching it. <laughs> it's what he would have wanted. <laughs> That's Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics and you can find the whole series via the BBC website. Now, Peter, you've chosen Ransom from 2009 by David Maloof, the Australian writer, and it's based on the Iliad, takes us back to the Trojan War, and it begins with Achilles distraught over the killing of Hector by Patroclus, who's his kinsman and, we assume, lover. Achilles slays Hector who's killed Patroclus, and then desecrates his body by dragging it behind a chariot for 10 days, which devastates Priam, Hector's father, who then comes to beg for his son's remains. Peter, I've read this recently as well, and I'm very impressed by it, but 
given that what we're focusing on is um, novelizations of the Greek myths that do it well, what is it that you like about what David Maloof has done? I think what I love about it is that it's a queer, masculine retelling of uh, Achilleus and his struggles. Achilleus kills Hector as revenge for the death of what you could perceive is his lover. Priam has to go get his son's body back and strips himself of all his uh, power, of all his ornamentation, and uh, approaches Achilleus as a as another man. That retrieving of bodies is something that happens throughout a lot of the Greek myths. You know, you've got sisters retrieving their brothers' bodies, fathers yeah, retrieving Antigone, their sons. Yep. And I think there's just something um, powerful about a task that is at hand, but at the same time going through the emotions of grief. And I think that's something we all relate to, you know, this idea of we have to grieve in life, but we also have to deal with the task at hand and what's the great way of approaching that. You know, the, the rituals of grief are such a powerful part of this book, that awful scene of Hector being dragged around and around and around the city. It's people rage and despair and try to work out what to do with this in a story that could also perhaps be understood as a story of genocide as well because an entire city is destroyed. Helen, I can see you nodding. I mean, grief, bodies, queer stories, does this make sense to you? Well, I have read Ransom as well. I saw it, it very much a father losing his son and having uh, his body desecrated and also it's about mercy too. It's about a king dressing down and finding someone to taking him to the camp and pleading for his son's body. Yes, it's about grief, but it's about how can you honour the dead when the enemy is so dead against making sure that this person will then not go to the next world and have all those rituals. And I found it very, very powerful as well. I think this is like the apex of his career in a way, you know. This book is really underrated. Actually, it's um, one of our Facebook group people told us that it's on the VCE for Year 12 students to study in Victoria. It's actually also on the HSC in New South Wales and no doubt in other states and territories as well. Like this is a much uh, celebrated studied book in the the Australian um, canon, I suppose. Yeah, so you're not alone in thinking that. Look, that book was published in 2009 and David Maloof spoke to RN's The Book Show then about how he was inspired by the power of the original work by Homer. What is astonishing to me is that that book was written 27 centuries ago. It's the first book in the canon of kind of Western literature and in many ways it sets the standard. I mean, it's I mean, there are many great things. Shakespeare's great and Tolstoy is great and Balzac is great. But in a way, for me, that work has never been really surpassed. Astonishing that it should stand there right at the beginning as an example to everybody who's coming of what you can actually do with words, with storytelling, with entering into the lives of people as Homer does in such an intimate way as well as working on a grand scale. Mm. I think that the agony of Achilles and Patroclus is 
just heartbreaking, whatever story you, you hear, whatever, whoever tells the story. But um, I guess that's going straight to what you're saying about David Maloof being the prime articulator of it. And it is a story of war and Priam, who goes to, you know, retrieve his son's body, he is in turn killed and that body is left out and that body left on the sand is one of the themes in Pat Barker's novel, The Women of Troy, published just last year and a follow-up to The Silence of the Girls. And Helen Batsakopoulos, that is one that you wanted to offer up as a book that did this well. That's right. So Pat Barker's book draws clearly on Homer and the Iliad, but also Euripides and Trojan women. One thing I had to say is with all these books, you know, I see no acknowledgements of Homer or Euripides or anyone, really, none of them, none of them, not a sort of thank you. I think (laughs) that would be great. And (laughs) and these uh, generous authors could then say, hey, you could always go back to the origins of these. But maybe that's assumed knowledge, which is Peter's point. exactly, which is what we were talking about it being you know, very sort of universal. But, you know, someone like Stephen, Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry at the beginning of Mythos even says, you know, yeah, the Greeks were good because they're great poets and they recorded this. But really, these uh, myths go back, back, back to Mesopotamia and India and whatever. And mm-hmm. it's almost like, almost a little bit dismissive, I think. But anyway, Pat Barker. So Pat <laughs> Barker knows war. She's written a lot about war before. I see this book as, it's certainly about genocide because uh, the Trojan men are, all killed. It's about infanticide, pregnant women. Uh, they might be carrying males. Uh, they they also, the kids have to be, uh, the babies have to be killed. And it's about women as the spoils of war. So that is very, very powerful. So Priam's body has been desecrated by Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus, um, and he doesn't want anyone to touch it. And it is a woman, an invented woman, who actually goes and tries to bury Priam, uh, which is very, very interesting. Of course, all the men are going, you know, but there's only two Trojan men left. Who would have done this? Who would have done it? A woman did it, guys. Uh, So that's really interesting. But what Seriously, what this does examine is what happens to women as spoils of war. And the best writing evokes empathy. And as psychologists say, you know, the transportation theory, we're there. And look, I was there too. I was there as a Trojan woman, perhaps. Uh, What would happen to me? And I have a 22-year-old daughter. What would happen to her? And I found myself there thinking, Helen, you're a woman of a certain age. You'd be lucky if you made it to the slave uh, market. Maybe they might even reject you or you'll be scrubbing floors somewhere in Sparta for the rest of your life. But your daughter, that's where I thought, oh, no, because there is a scene where a beautiful young girl is blindfolded and she's basically thrown from soldier to soldier to soldier to soldier and the rapes and the brutalities there. Probably not as much. Ismail Kadari wrote The Siege and that to me had this indelible image in my mind of women being tied up in in, uh, rape tents until they died and then thrown over the cliff. So, But there was a power in this about women and the men are really sort of a little bit 
maybe a bit dumb, I think, or maybe a little bit one-dimensional. Uh, but it's it's the women there, even though, you know, at one stage you pass each other and they air kiss and I think, oh, that's, that's a bit different. But it certainly had a power and, yes, it's about, Troy in the aftermath, but it could also be about Bosnia, it could also be about Rwanda or any other place where there has been a war and the women are booty. This is exactly what Pat Barker brought up in a conversation with Claire Nichols from the um, the book show on RN. Here she is in part of that conversation on that point exactly. The women of childbearing are age and the young girls are taken as slaves, sex slaves basically, but also people to do all the rough work around the camp. Uh, Some of the women are held in common by the men uh, and the, the most beautiful women are awarded to the kings as their prizes of honour and they become in effect concubines, but that's a, a very a dainty word for what is actually going on. And let's not forget that in the news recently, there was a story of Greek fighters uh, being awarded girls as young as 12 in areas of Afghanistan that they had just overrun. So we can't have this comforting idea that, oh, well, this is in the dim and distant past, you know, we've outgrown all that. Because female sex slavery is actually happening all over the modern day world. That's Pat Barker, the author of Women of Troy, talking on the book show just uh, last year and and really underlining what you've just said, Helen. That's right. And and if you look at the, the myths, you know, these aspects of them have to be retold. Uh, and and the women who did classics and have found a way to uh, make their degrees work, uh, good on them if you've reimagined these these stories. And, and they are powerful because it really did make me think. And we do have conflicts going on in the world at the moment. I don't know what's happening in Ukraine and all these uh, cities that have been overtaken. Uh, those stories will emerge, I'm sure. Women are the casualties of war. Indeed. And in fact, Kate, that leads us to the book that you think has looked at the, you know, one of the myths very well, and that's Home Fire by Carmela Shamsi, and she takes it to a different location again. Yes, she has set her story in, well, it moves between contemporary England, America and Afghanistan. But what she does with the story is uh, it's partly about what happens to a body and a a young man's body who has been radicalised and his body becomes politicised and then his sister is fighting and defying the state as a way to, uh, well, reflect what happens in Antigone with a young woman defying the state by saying that a body has to go through the rituals of mourning and the return to the underworld. Now, Carmela Shamsi is so interesting on this, I think, because she draws attention to the ways in which, well, this is a story that might be read in different ways depending on what country and what culture is behind it. And I spoke to her in 2017 when the book first came out, and this is what she said about that. 
what you see when you go back to the greeks and and you know it should be said that we are going back to the greeks more and more these days. there are more greek tragedies, it feels being rewritten or adapted or put on stage now than i've i've known for a very long time when you go back to the greeks, you realize that human nature itself and the relationships of power don't change but the ways in which those play out do and so there is you know whether it's the greeks or whether it's shakespeare or whoever it is the reason they still work is that they're still believable about human nature but the world you put that in and the situations you adapt it around of course do change and are flexible and there will be moments when one play will speak to us much more than the other i mean one the interesting things um around antigone is you know this is a girl who defies the will of the state in order to bury her brother that's her basic story and she's read either as a fanatic who will not recognize any limit or as a hero who recognizes that there is justice and that sometimes that means you take on the law and most often this view of hers as a hero will come about in places that are or have suffered oppressive rule um whereas the view of her as a fanatic is much more likely to come in more liberal democracies where people think that you know basically if there's a law then you're supposed to abide by it um look just this week i, I was thinking about uh with the you know tragic loss of the titan uh submersible you know in my mind i i thought gosh it's a bit like icarus in reverse you know going instead of going too close to the sun they went too deep you know and i thought oh my god that's a greek myth you know and then i thought oh that's hubris isn't it i that's where i know the concept of hubris and then later that day there was another news cycle and there was something about catharsis and i think my god the greek myths they're everywhere they're in the way we understand or i at least understand the world peter do you see it all the time in things i do yeah i think about like uh When I was a kid, I watched Terminator 2, Sarah Connor, a kick-ass feminist character, yeah. and kind of like Clytemnestra, the she a fortune that no one believed. Mm. You know, then as a teenager and an adult, reading Toni Morrison's Beloved, a version of Medea, the myths are the way I interpret the world. You know, it's just I think it's part of our knowledges. I shared. understanding of ourselves. Yeah. But this is the thing I do still think that they I say I don't like I don't draw the distinctions between ancient Greeks and modern Greeks. I just think they just come from the same place. And I'm not a Greek nationalist, but I do think that there are cultural knowledges. And you know, you talked about being the son the daughter of peasant farmers, do you know I mean? And to me that's like the most ancient thing in the world. <laughs> These people living off the elements. those are our people you know what i mean that's what your that's what your family it's what our families did for generations and generations my parents came from a barter economy they didn't come from an economic economy my parents village didn't have running water or electricity until the 80s long after they left our parents had more in common with the ancient greeks than they do with actually us it's a very good point that you've just made there and you've reminded me of my grandmother whose name was dimitra and we keep on naming our favorite Well, ancestors and after that's the, right. This that's is right. Demetra. And Dimitra, yeah, Dimitra, Dimitra lost her daughter, Persephone. My grandmother lost her daughter in the Greek Civil War. Uh, her daughter yeah. was taken away by the communists and lived her final days in Tashkent. I'm reminded very much of that myth. And uh, you know, when the old woman got 
when she got older and she got dementia and she would watch television, she'd say, there's my daughter. There she's. It's like she's in television land. She's in the underworld and she does come up occasionally through the television to see me. But, yes, you're right, you know, life experience and everything we've been through, yes. Uh, I've been doing some research on family for a book and I remember talking to my father and saying, what did you all do in the evenings, you know, when you uh, uh, finished working in the fields and, you you know, you'd had dinner and you sat around? And he said the old women used to sit there with the kids at their feet and tell them stories, oral tradition, mm. what they had heard from their grandmothers, and that was it. That was the television or the Netflix mm. uh, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. That's as ancient as it gets. Absolutely. And so I think now we're seeing these female, these women who are are telling the stories and they're telling the women's stories. And and that also made me think of something else that I feel like the Greek myths, they're like a common language. You know, we we know this is a language that, that we're very familiar with. We know its structures. We know its characters. They're kind of handy. For for lack of a better word, we, you know, everybody knows that story, but now we can kind of change the focus, Mm. for instance. Well, what a fascinating topic and what a great discussion. Thank you all for being part of it. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr Tamara Neal is a lecturer in ancient Greek at the University of Sydney. Peter Politis is a writer. He's from Western Sydney and he's the author of two acclaimed novels, Down the Hume and The Pillars, and his new work, the deeply personal novel, God Forgets About the Poor will be out in August. And Dr Helen Vatsikopoulos is a fellow at the University of Technology in Sydney and also the Artistic Director of the Greek Australian Writers' Festival. Which, of course, we'll have to go to next time, Cassie. Sure will. And just a heads up, our upcoming book club editions next month, the August Book Club, examines all six finalists in this year's Miles Franklin Literary Award, which, of course, is Australia's most prestigious award. We've just released a podcast special with interviews with all six writers, and you can listen to that now. And by then, we will have learned the winner for 2023. Exciting. The following month, September, we're devoting the book club to the late Frank Morehouse. You can find all the details of the books we're reading, but for the Morehouse one, we've selected 4017 and Grand Days. So that's the first week of August for the Miles Franklin Literary Award Shortlist Book Club and the first week of September for the Frank Morehouse Retrospective. And we'd love you to read along with us. But that's it for this book club edition of The Bookshelf. Big thanks, as always, to producer Sarah Corbett. Next week, the latest from Anna Funder, Wifedom, Jen Craig's new novel, Wall, and from Priya Gunn's Your Driver Is Waiting. I'm Kate Evans. See you then. And I'm Cassie McCullough. I'll be away for the next few weeks, so happy reading and ciao for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.